If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is what we're going to look at. And if you're with us and you don't have a Bible, uh, maybe you forgot it at home today or you don't own one, you can just raise your hand now. And there's a couple of guys in the back will help get you one. Uh, whatever happens over the next 45-ish minutes is not hopefully my wisdom or advice. Um, we, we believe in God's Word. God has spoken. He's talked to us about who He is, who we are, how to live in light of who He is. And so this is not about uh, my wisdom or uh, uh, shrewdness at all. We always want to look at a copy of God's Word. Uh, we also, if you're newer with us, well, you know what we just sang is a key part of the good news that we celebrate as Christians. Jesus is a friend to sinners, not a friend to righteous people, but the friend, the gracious, kind, uh, benevolent friend to sinners who've come to him confessing their sin. And that is, that's good news. That's who we are. Um, and we're going to look at this morning how to live in light uh, of the fact that we are sinners who have been saved. So we're in Romans chapter 12, and we've been looking at this, this section about how to live as Christians. Christians, according to verse 1, are supposed to be living sacrifices. That is, the Christian life uh, is not just done in uh, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, but your whole life is devoted as a sacrifice unto the Lord as an act of worship to Him. And to understand our passage today, I want you to think about when you were younger and your friends were taking, or sorry, your parents were taking you over maybe to a friend's house or a, a grandparent's house or some relative Maybe a house you don't go to that often or a house you've never been to before. You're five or six. You're pulling up into the driveway of these, uh, these people's house, either friend from church, friend from work. And before you get out of the car, your parents turn around and go, now listen, before we go in there, there's some things I want to remind you of. How many of you remember the reminder conversations before going to grandma's house? Listen, Aunt Edna, she's not like us. She's got a lot of fragile stuff. So you need to be careful before you go in, right? There's some warning that it looks like we're going into a house, and there are some things that are the same, just like you can't color on the walls in our house, you can't color on the walls in this house, but there's also some other rules that you need to be mindful of because we don't live here. If you remember that conversation, it relates a little bit to what our passage is like today. We as Christians have another home. Uh, we have a home in eternity. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. We don't invest everything into this life. We are mindful of the life to come. And because of that, we need to remember that we are here living in someone else's house. This world isn't our home. And if it's not our house, if these people aren't our people, how should that affect the way we live? How do you worship God in an ungodly world? How do you live for eternity with people who have no desire, no thought of eternity? How do you as a Christian live amongst non-Christians in a way that worships the Lord? That's what this passage is about today. Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 12, 14 through chapter 13, verse 7. Life in an unsaved world for a living sacrifice. Last week we talked about our love for each other. I worship God in the way I love other believers. Today, we're going to look at how we live with non-Christians as those who've trusted in Christ. So let's look at it together. Uh, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. The Word of God reads, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this passage this morning. Help us to understand how we ought to worship you in a world that does not want to worship you. Lord, sometimes we are strangely surprised when most people around us don't love you. That is not what you have promised to us, Lord. You have told us that we would live in a world where uh, few are chosen and broad is the way to destruction. So God, help us to live with graciousness. Help us to understand how we worship you in the midst of a lost world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a few things stacked against me as I'm going into this passage. Uh, not against me, I, I believe in this passage, I, I know it's true, but I, I'm going to need to hold your attention for two different reasons. One is, some of this sounds kind of pie-in-the-sky, fluffy language. Honor one another, love one another, it sounds very kumbaya-ish, and so some of you are going to look at this and think, yeah, that's, that's not really how we're supposed to go. That, that's something that, if I can get to it, that's great, but I don't have to live this out. And so I would just say, as we come to this passage, we remember the context is being a living sacrifice. I worship God in the way I act, not just in what I sing and pray and recite. And so this passage is important. It's about how we worship the Lord. I think the second thing we have stacked against us is some of you are going, wait a second, didn't Mac just cover this in first service? Mac, Mac was all over this passage already. Why do we need to do it again? We didn't text this week, uh, not about this, some other thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't look at this this week. Uh, just in God's providence, uh, this passage has come up in first hour, and it's coming up again, which I tend to think that means some of us really need to work through this issue today, uh, which will be good for us. So let's see the importance of how we're supposed to live in this context. What is this saying about me as a Christian living in a non-Christian world where everything in the media, everything that's mainstream is opposed to what I believe uh, as, a, as a Christian. How do I live? And I think that this passage is going to help us to live with sweetness and help us to live with submission. How are you supposed to live in a non-Christian world with sweetness and with submission? Let's look at number one. If, if you're a, a note taker, we have two points today. Number one is this. We live with sweetness with a spiteful people. Sweetness with a spiteful people. Everybody wants to fit in, right? We all like to fit in. Many of us make decisions uh, about entertainment, uh, about our free time, about our clothing, our music choices. We make those decisions because we'd like to fit in. We'd like to not be. Now, some of you are, and you know who the friend is in your group. Some of you like purposely choose things that you won't fit in. You're the only one that's like you. You can recognize that individual right there. But many of us, we want to fit in. At some point in our life, we have this bent towards, I don't want to be totally against the grain. But the issue we find over and over again in the New Testament is that we will, as Christians, be different. Philippians 3 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on this earth. We don't belong with this world. Take a look on the screen, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Peter 4, 3 says, For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That is, we as Christians have already had enough time 
to live the way the world lives. We, we don't follow them anymore. We don't follow them in their partying. We don't follow them in their pursuit of pleasure and the following of their, their fleshly passions. With respect to this, though, because we don't live like they do anymore, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That is, if you're a Christian, you're going to be different from the world, that the world's going to look at you and go, man, that person lives totally different than the way the rest of my friends live, the rest of the people I know live. And they might mock, at the very least they'll be surprised because you're different than them. In fact, Romans 12 verse 2, we looked at it a few weeks ago, says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. As we worship God, we're different than the world around us. And the response of the world then is going to be that they malign us and mock us and tease and jest and and make Christianity and Christian living the butt of their joke. They will persecute. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live uh, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Promise. A promise is if you desire to live a godly life in Christ, if you try to actually honor the Lord, not just Sundays and Wednesdays, but through your life, well, then you will be persecuted. They will mock your holiness. They'll mock your view of God, your view of Jesus. Or they will slander you as immoral. You know, there was a time in our country where it was this kind of understanding like, okay, Christians are at least morally good. We could tease them for being good, but they're goody two-shoes. And it was a view of Christians that they were at least moral people, even though they may be like prudish and boring. Uh, but that's, that's how you viewed them. But now, if you're, if you're a Christian in your views of marriage, if you have a biblical view of gender, you'll have people that mock and say, man, what, what a bigot. How, in, how intolerant. I mean, you're basically like a KKK member in your view of homosexuals. You are just so hateful. And so you're going to be viewed as if, not just that you're different, but that you're morally inferior. That's a a change that didn't exist 50 years ago in the culture that we live in. And so how should we, as we're going to be slighted, as at your job or at your school, uh, you're going to be uh, mocked, how do we respond? Romans says the way you worship God is in your response is that you respond with kindness and gentleness and sweetness. This is incredibly countercultural. Paul's response is ready, verse 14 Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, that you would be a blessing that you would speak well of and do good to those who harm you. As a Christian, we are not out to get even or to get back at those who hurt us. We bless. In fact, I think in verse 15, we have such a a love for them, though I think verse 15 primarily talks about our relationships with one another, we'd be in a position where we would rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, even if those who are rejoicing and weeping are not Christians. So your enemy, the person at your school who's been making fun of you for being a Christian, is excited that they got a four on the AP test. They're pumped. They passed. Does four still pass, AP people? I know you had a hard week. All right, just double-checking there. I, was, I mean, I was basic high school English, so that was a fun time, um, right? Can you be excited for them, or are you so against them because they're against you that even that you can't rejoice in? Or your unsaved neighbor who thinks you're so foolish for going to church every week, their spouse or a loved one passes away. Can you still weep with them and be sad with them over those things? Because Paul here talks about loving those who are your enemies. Look at verse 17. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Repay no one evil for evil. 
That is so hard to do and so opposite of everything that exists in our culture. Because what does the world say? It says you fight fire with what? Fight fire with? Fire, right? Don't get mad. What do you do? Instead, you get get even, right? That, that's the mind. And you see that everywhere. You see it in movies today. You see it in sports. Sports is just one great game of vengeance. You see it unfolding on, on social media all the time where someone will comment, someone will say something back to get even. This whole world is about getting back. And we need to pause for a second and figure out why that is. Why is that that we're so quick to want to speak against someone that's spoken against us? Well, we actually talked about this last week. It has everything to do with love of self. Look, remember how love of self is spoken against of in this passage. Right here, right in front of you, Romans 12. Look at verse 3. It says, For by grace given to me, I say everyone among you, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. And then again, look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never think of yourself as important. The reason why we like to take revenge, the reason why your little brother comes in your room and he mouths off and you're like ready to pummel him is because we love us some us. We love us. And who is this person to speak against, do harm against, not consider, not invite the almighty me, right? Vengeance comes from a high view of self, a love of self. And so because I love me, and you've attacked the thing I love, well, I'm going to retaliate. Either my actions or my words or my, the way I talk about you to other people, that is how we seek out revenge. Paul is saying if you're a living sacrifice to Christ, you don't do that. Vengeance is not what you're after. That's not us. We do not return evil for evil. Someone mouths off, someone's impolite to us. We do not have license then to be impolite back. All you've done that is not going to even, you created two sinners. What has he said? He said, he says, do what is honorable, right? Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, the word there in the Greek is actually like, think about what would bring honor, what would be good. So if someone does something wrong to you, you put thought into thinking, what would be something that would be right here, that would be morally appropriate, that would align with godliness so that, anyone, even non-Christians, would look at it and go, man, this guy totally responded in a way that was kind and generous uh, to being treated unfairly. We are supposed to do what is undeniably kind when people are undeniably evil to us. How kind, you ask? Well, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If someone keeps being mean to you, if someone is hateful towards you, you just keep loving them in return. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, you, you've seen this play out. Either you have younger siblings or this happened when you were younger. One sibling, uh, I, I remember this, a friend of mine, is, he had two younger boys, and, and one of them just smacked the other right across the face. I think this is like, five and eight-year-olds kind of age right there, which is the five-year-old went whack. And the eight-year-old hit him back. And the five-year-old goes, Mom, he's returning evil for evil. And you're missing the point there a little bit. But I think we, we feel like we can be justified. If they were mean to me, well, then I could be mean right back to you. And that's everywhere. We see that in every aspect of our life. Turns out what Paul says, instead of re returning with evil, return with kindness, with sweetness, with grace. It turns out that Paul says, you fight fire with water. Instead of don't get mad, get even, it's don't get mad. Or, or maybe if you want to fill it out, don't get mad, be godly. Because you're supposed to worship God, you worship God in those moments by honoring him. Well, how far do you go? How far do you go with that? Look at verse 18. Beloved, or sorry, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with others. Student, this morning, would you say that you've done all that you can 
to be at peace with people in your life? That you've done at least the best you could. I don't mean just like, well, I texted, sorry. I mean, have you done what you could do so that there's no strife between you and someone else? Have you done your best? I'll take a moment. I, I think this talks about life in the church and outside the church. And though we are predominantly looking at life outside the church, have you done all that you can in this room to be at peace with all people? Pastor John referenced this verse, but I think it's, it's worth looking at. Go to, go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, you can hold your spot in Romans. It's one of two verses I'm going to have you look at today. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount begins with all the Beatitudes, and one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If, if you're a son of God and God is a peacemaker, we also will be peacemakers. But Matthew chapter 5 talks about uh, anger. It talks about murder in the heart. Uh, Jesus says, verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering, now here you go. How far do I go to be at peace with somebody? If you are offering your gift at the altar. So this is, uh, this is temple language. You're a Jew, you've traveled to the temple, you've waited in line. It's a long line on days that people would offer sacrifice. You've waited in line, you've got your animal at the altar, and it says, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. You remember, man, there is somebody who who has uh, some beef with me, some animosity with me, some reason they're upset, and I've not done all that I could to make it right. What do I do? Well, even though I've waited in line, I don't just say, I'll sacrifice now, I'll do it. It says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I mean, that's a radical commitment to being made right with somebody, that you would be inconvenienced, uh, you would actually not participate in spiritual work so that you could be reconciled to someone. This is part of the reason why we, we think if you are getting ready to take communion and you remember that there's strife between you and somebody else, particularly you and another believer, and, uh, and you've not tried to uh, bridge that gap, you've not sought forgiveness, you've not tried to make that relationship right, I think it's a good reason to let the cup pass that week. Uh, many of your leaders have done that because they realize it's about honoring the Lord, even if I don't, uh, I still can remember his sacrifice, his death in my place, but I'm going to be made right with others. With unbelievers, they may hate you, but it's not because you hate them. At least I should say, it should not be because you hate them, but you try to be at peace with all. We're back in Romans 12 now. You be at peace as far as it depends on you. Like Some people are going to be against you no matter what. Some people are going to despise you no matter what, but have you done all that you can to be at peace with them? What would that look like? Well, maybe that looks like apologizing. They say all sorts of evil things against you, slanderous things, mocking you, and you as a Christian pop off with something you should not have said. Who was in the wrong more? Probably them. But you should still go apologize. Why? Because you've, you've sinned. You've done wrong. Even if what they did was worse than what you did, you still need to go to them and say, hey, I'm sorry I said that to you. That was wrong of me to say, to talk in that way or to speak in that tone. You'd be at peace at all by treating them with kindness. So as a Christian, my job now is to not navigate the patio on a Sunday morning, not making eye contact with people I have beef with. Yeah, we said we're good, so we don't see them anymore. My job is not to navigate the school campus, to not make eye contact with people I'm refusing to be at peace with. But I still treat them with kindness. I'll still say hello, not in a mocking way or in a teasing way, but just to let them know I still care for them, even though they could care less for me. As a Christian, I am at peace with all by avoiding combativeness where you can. You avoid combativeness where you can. So some of you have relatives that are totally against uh, the morality that you hold to as a Christian. 
And, uh, and they should if you're a Christian and they love the world. That probably doesn't mean you start with Roe versus Wade at the dinner table. You know what I mean? Like there's ways to like ask them about like their health and their family and their work, etc. Like I don't need to jump into the hottest topic every time. And I say that knowing that some Christians love that they can agitate non-Christians with a view. They love to just press it and get it and like, hey, you know how I feel about, about homosexuality, right? Mm, and that's, that's not how we're supposed to be. We're not looking to pick a fight. Uh, we're looking to be at peace with all as far as we can on our end. Now, we're happy to have those conversations, but that's not what we go for. Friends, is that like you on your campus? How do you do with non-Christians? And let me just pause here because I am aware it's the second time this sermon has, has kind of come up today. This topic has come up. How are you doing with people in this room? Are you at peace with other believers? Are you quick to forgive and to ask for forgiveness? Some of you might need to today, as soon as uh, Caden finishes the closing song at the end, talk to somebody in the hallway after and say, hey, I've, I've been avoiding you, or I've been speaking like this to you, or I've been speaking like this about you behind your back, and I need to say I'm sorry. I need to not just do the, the, the typical teenage thing to do. And by the way, I say the teenage thing. Adults just do the same thing in a more advanced way. Is to kind of say like, hey, we're good, right? All right, cool. Yeah, and then just act like, but there's never a, I'm sorry and I forgive you. Friend, that doesn't honor the Lord. Uh, you can make that right today. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Josh, if at my campus I'm seeking to make peace with everybody, um, I'm going to be taken advantage of. Right? You've thought this before. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to be a doormat. People are going to walk all over me. They're going to know I'm going to be nice. They're going to know I don't retaliate. So what do I, what do? I do? Right? This, is, this is part of, you know, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not be anxious for your life. And this is part of us being anxious. How do I survive and do things I need to do if people are going to take advantage of me? Anxiety itself is a part of self-preservation. Well, the remedy is faith. The remedy to that sort of worry is faith, faith in God. This passage is not just do these things because it's wiser, but do these things because you're acting in faith. You're trusting God for who he is, and therefore you don't retaliate, you don't seek revenge. Well, faith in what? Two things. Okay, faith in what? First, you have faith in God's vengeance. You have faith in God's vengeance. So verse 19 says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul is quoting there from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. And what he's saying is revenge is God's. And so when somebody wrongs you, there is this desire we have for justice, we, we want, like, no, this is wrong, I've been wronged, and somebody needs to make it right, and so I'll take it in my own hands. And Paul says, don't do that, let God sort it out. See, Hebrews 9, 27, Hebrews 9, 27 is a verse to look up later. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. God is going to judge, ultimately. He might judge to a degree in this life, he will ultimately judge in eternity. And the question is, do you trust God to be the judge? See, if you're not a Christian, if you have a worldview that says life ends at the grave, uh, you know, and that, that's it, then of course revenge is going to be part of your life. Because there is no eternal judge and jury. And so I need to be judge and jury now. You understand that, right? The world acts the way they do because they, they don't have a, an eternity. This is the time to render justice. And that's why people are really excited to divvy out justice today. But we as Christians trust the Lord. Let me give you one example of that trust. I want you to take your Bible. This, is a, this, is a, this might be a new one for some of you. I want you to take your Bible and turn to the table of contents. Turn to the table of contents. I don't mean to be condescending. It would mean I'm talking down to you. Um, but go to the table of contents. And then go to, when you find the table of contents, find the book of Habakkuk. Find the book of Habakkuk. See, you, some of you are like, I know where it is, but most of you don't, and that's okay. And then go to the book of Habakkuk. Book of Habakkuk, it's on page, uh, let's see, 1,357 on my Bible. 
That doesn't help any of you, but I just thought I'd share that fact as you're turning there. So go to the book of Habakkuk, because I think this, this is an example of the kind of trust that says, I believe God will carry out justice. I believe God to carry out justice, so I don't need to worry about it. So let me give you the 30-second tour of Habakkuk. It's, it'll help you a ton. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord in a sort of a righteous frustration. And here's his frustration. Israel is evil, and they're getting away with it. Verse 2, O Yahweh, how long will I cry for help? You don't hear. Or I cry to you, violence, you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? In other words, God, there's so much wickedness in Israel, you're not doing anything. And God comes with verse 5, look among the nations, see and wonder and be astounded. This is one of my favorite uh, misinterpreted verses. They don't think about the context. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And we go, oh, right? That's such like an encouragement verse. Like, like you know, you know. listen, I know that she just broke your heart. And that's the fourth one this semester. But... But God's doing a work you wouldn't even believe if you were told. You're like, I believe, Lord. And so verse 6 then comes. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, to march to the breadth of the earth, and to seize dwellings not their own. In other words, Habakkuk goes, Lord, Israel's really wicked. And God goes, that's great. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to totally crush them. Which then brings this lament from Habakkuk, to which he goes, how is that okay? Those, pe- those people are worse than us. Uh, the, the, verse 12, are you not the everlasting one, O Lord my God, my holy one? Uh, you, who are pure, uh, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? He makes it say, he says, they are worse than us. So how do you allow that to happen? God's response, so look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, what God will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What's God's response to Habakkuk? His response to this complaint is, verse 6 of chapter 2, See, not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing, riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who reaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him. These are declarations of judgment. Uh, Verse 15, woe to him. Uh, What prophet is an idol? Verse 18, verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. In other words, God proclaims judgment. And I think the reason why the Chaldeans aren't mentioned in chapter 2 is it's judgment on all who disobey. I will judge all the Israelites who have forsaken me. And I will judge these Babylonians for their wicked deeds. And I will do it in my time. How does this relate to Romans? Chapter 3, verse 16. Here's, here's Habakkuk's sort of response. Chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear. He, he's, he's thought about God as a warrior. That's chapter 3. Who, who could stop him? I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He's terrified of God's wrath that's coming. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, I absolutely believe God's going to judge us, and I tremble. And I will patiently, in faith, wait for God to do what his promise is to judge the Babylonians as well. What do we do as Christians? We wait for God to judge. It is not up to us to get even. God will get even in his time. And so we show that we trust him by being patient, by not seeking revenge. We can go back to Romans 12 now. That's where we'll camp the rest of the time. And so what do we do instead? Well, we, we've, already, we've already done what we read about. We if our enemy has a, needs food, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. Verse 20 is a really interesting verse. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's some really, there's a debate about what that means. Is that a sign to bring them repentance? There's some good reason why that would be. 
I think there's an overwhelming uh, list of examples where hot coals are associated with the wrath of God. I lean towards what this is saying is you trust God, you keep being good even if they keep responding with evil, and as they keep responding for evil, they are just storing up more and more wrath for themselves. So you don't need to worry about it. God notices every good thing that we do and every injustice done to us for the sake of Christ. So regardless, we do good. So we have faith in God's vengeance. We also have faith in God's love. Verse 19, just tucked in there, in mine it's translated at the very beginning. It's like the fourth word in Greek. It's beloved. Never avenge yourselves. Isn't that interesting that Paul wants to tell you, Christian, that you're beloved? That, that in his warning to not take vengeance, remember that you're loved. Remember that you're loved by, by God. Think about Christ in the context of this passage. 1 Peter, I have it on the screen, chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ, by the way, suffering not for anything wrong that he had done. He was suffering for for our wrongs. In fact, verse 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? He's dying for us so that by his wounds, we might be healed. We might be forgiven. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what you need most is forgiveness, forgiveness from a God that you have offended and Jesus suffered for our sins, so that our sins could be paid for, so that you can know that you've been healed and cleansed and absolutely forgiven. You can know forgiveness in Christ, and he shows us how we respond to mistreatment and his example of mistreatment for our sins towards him. Christ loved us, it says, when we were enemies. We are not good people worthy of God's love. We were sinners that he has rescued And therefore, that should affect the way we treat our enemies. If you know you're loved, you could put up with a lot, right? I mean, uh, someone can deal with a difficult work environment if they know their family loves them when they get home. Some of you deal with uh, the difficult school uh, environment because of the love that you experience in the home. Others deal with a difficult family environment because of the friendships they have at school. All of us as Christians enjoy the blessing uh, of life in the church, which helps remedy the difficulty of living in a lost world. We trust God's judgment. We believe God's love for us. As Romans 8 says that nothing separates us from the love of God. And therefore we, we trust in a spiteful world, believers show the sweetness and the grace of a God who saved them. Let's look at number two. Number two, and this one will obviously be shorter. Let's talk about the the believers practice submission to a strange power. Submission to a strange power. I I wanted it to alliterate. So sweetness with a spiteful people and submission to a strange power. That should be point number two. There we go. Chapter 13 then goes and talks about government. Talks about authorities in your life. And in one sense, there's a lot you could say about this. Uh, In fact, there's a lot that's been written about this over the last few years. There's been a few issues with government in the media recently. I don't know if you guys can think of any. But what I love is just the simplicity of this passage. And before we get into this passage, uh, let me ask you a question. If you are, if you decide that you want to go on vacation, you want to travel somewhere international, maybe you go to France. You decide to go to France and you want to see the Eiffel Tower because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do when you're in France, I, I assume. I've, I've never been. And, uh, and you just decide, like, while you're there, like, man, I love this thing. I'd love to leave my mark on this thing. And, you know, I've got some chalk, and I'm just going to kind of write my name on that, which I don't think you're supposed to do. Can anyone verify this? Don't think you're allowed to do that. Anyway, somebody comes up to you from, uh, the, I don't know the French word for, for police, but someone comes up and says, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And you respond by saying, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I'm not from here. So it's totally fine. I belong to another country, right? That wouldn't make sense, right? And yet, 
I think that's in some of the thinking of the Christians that Paul is writing to. They go, okay, there's an emperor, but there's also Jesus who's Lord over all. So do I still have to listen to that guy? That's a fair question for us to think about. And, uh, and Paul's first words are pretty clear. Verse 1, let every person, this is chapter 13 now, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He begins with saying, submission. Your posture towards ungodly governments is to submit. And if you think this is a random one-off, Titus 3, Paul says the exact same thing. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says the same thing. Peter says it in a way that, uh, in the context of saying, here's how you live so that the unbelieving world would come to get saved. You lean into submission to ungodly governments. We are, as Christians, supposed to be known as people who obey. So take a look at first, I have it on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Uh, Paul is saying that we should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands as we instructed you. Uh, good job of you who do woodworking, working with your hands. Uh, but the, the point there, aspire to live quietly, is the idea of like we're not insurrectionists. We're not rabble-rousers. We're, we're not trying to constantly overthrow the government. We're not people. Uh, we, we should not say, man, if I make this law, no matter what law it is, we know those Christians are going to be the first ones to always speak out against it. We should not be those who are always looking for ways to disobey the government, but we have a posture that wants to submit to governing authorities. Now, some of you thinking, wait a second, though. Does, does God understand? Does God understand what we're dealing with here? Uh, I mean, you look at our, our government today, and I mean, this is not godly. This is not honor the Lord. Some of the way that they, they speak about abortion. Um, this is not a good thing. You even think in our own county where we've had to deal with some issues of, you know, we're not actually punishing criminals the way they should be punished. Does God, not, does, did Paul maybe not understand this? Let's, let's bring Paul back. Friends, what they experienced in Rome is far worse than the stuff we've experienced today. We have been blessed and spoiled. Uh, Paul would have been so confused at the idea of like uh, a Christian political movement. That would have been a very foreign idea to him. For us, we, we have reaped the benefits of being in a country where we've been spoiled for a long time. But, uh, but these commands still apply to us today. They do. Why? Why do they apply to us? Because it says, look at this, every person be subject to the governing authorities, first and foremost, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Why is Biden president? Why was Trump president before him? Why will Larry Brown be president next? All, I hope, that'd be amazing. All, because God allows it. Look, Newsom just recently has policies that are so evil and contrary to scripture. And he's there because God put him there. Let's get more practical here. The teachers you have, the school administrators you have, the coaches you have, the boss you have, all exist in your life. The Bible study shepherds and small group leaders that you have were put there by God. And to disregard and disobey authority that's put in your life is sin against God. We have such an inclination that wants to rebel against authority. And I wonder if it's any different from the same rebellion that the world demonstrates. We are to treat the authorities as if they exist from God. Part of the reason why is because God's design is authorities are a good thing. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Right? I don't remember the, the last time the government came to you know, arrest somebody for making a meal for their neighbor or something like that. Like Good things are usually rewarded, but what are they? Uh, he says, but to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. The government exists 
uh, to, uh, for the praise of those who do good and to punish wrongdoers. Now, look, there, are, there is definitely in our age, and I think particularly in L.A. County, uh, we, we deal with stuff where it does seem that right is being called wrong, and wrong is getting off with a lesser sentence than it used to. But isn't it still encouraging that, like, I don't know, there's, like, you still can't just get away with murder, and they go, like, ah, let's let that guy go. You can't flee the state or the country, and the authorities won't try to track these people down. There are still good things that the governments do, even ungodly governments, that say, ah, you know what? You can't just divorce your wife and your kids and leave them without giving them money, right? There's good things that promote care for others still that exist. And we know that because God's word tells us that would happen. What should be our response? And that is, we should be in subjection, verse 5. Now, I know some of you are thinking this. I want to I answer this. Some of you are thinking the question already. You're like, yeah, but what about where they tell us to sin? What, do we just obey blindly? And the answer is obviously no. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. We are called to obey God. If the government specifically tells you to sin, then you don't sin. You obey God. But here would be my worry in this room. My worry is that we would all need to uh, be convinced to obey something we don't like versus having a posture that says, I'm going to only disobey if God doesn't allow me to obey them. Does that make sense? We live in a day and age where it seems like our posture more and more is, I'm only going to listen if they convince me I should. It's, I'm only going to obey if I have to. This seems to lean towards, you obey except when it disobeys God. And so, when tax season comes around, and some of you have jobs, although you probably don't make enough, you have to pay taxes yet. When tax seasons come around, even though the state of California has legislation that's totally bonkers, I pay money to the state. Why? Because God tells me to. Even though I'm for small government and not for big government, every April uh, I give money to the IRS because I'm supposed to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto the Lord what is under the Lord's. We have a posture that we want to obey. You have verse 7. Here's where I want to land. I, I think this is helpful for us. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I want you to think about respect and honor. If our language towards politicians we don't like is the exact same as the language of other political parties towards politicians they don't like, I don't think that's exactly what Paul has in mind about not being conformed to this world. There should be some difference that we're a living sacrifice. How do we respect? How do we honor? Well, 1 Timothy 2 says that you honor by praying. I want the man everywhere to lift up holy hands to pray. He says, for rulers and authorities. So it's okay to disagree with our politicians, and some of those things we should disagree with. Do you pray for them? Do you pray for them to come to know Christ? You know, do you want Biden out of office? Sure. But you should also pray that he like accepts Jesus and goes to heaven, right? Because that is that is the way we that's the love we've been shown. It's the sort of love that we should show for others. I would also say that make sure that we're not criticizing for things that we ourselves are doing. So we're talking about like, man, look at the way these leaders foster ungodliness. Well, let me ask you about your friend groups. Are you, the, are you just this major influence of godliness in your groups? Are, are you seeing people uh, grow in godliness under you? Or are you seeing, well, less godliness? You criticize the sexual ethic of our leaders. Do you laugh at some of those same sexual ethics in your group? Well, friend, let's not be hypocrites here. Let's be godly in our groups and godly in our way that we talk about those that God has put in authority over us. The way we do this, you will not do this well by thinking about electoral ballots or thinking about political theory. You will do this well in the same way that we applied the end of chapter 12, by faith in God. God is the one who rises up kings, raises up kings. God is the one who brings kings down. God is the one who will establish his kingdom forever. 
Let's end by looking at Psalm 2 and we could pray. Psalm 2, and thank you guys. We wanted to look. I just thought government wasn't a great way to look at the, to introduce the freshmen next week. You know, welcome to high school, Romans 13. So we'll, we'll, we'll go something a little more uh, uh, at the end of Romans 13 for them. But look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is where we'll end. Man, this trust that we can have. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you forever. This is speaking of Christ. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's good to know that any who come to Christ will be forgiven. Any who submit to him will receive forgiveness. Friends, before you put your Bibles away, let us not act in our attitude towards government as if we don't believe Psalm 2 or Revelation 21 and 22 or many of the other passages that talk about the eternal kingdom. Let us not act as if Jesus isn't coming back, that he's going to right every wrong, that he's going to welcome every sinner whom he's going to forgiven, and he's going to reign forever. We can live as living sacrifices because we know the promises of God are, are true, and Jesus will reign. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the way that you challenge us. Thank you for exposing areas that we fall short, that we live for self and not as living sacrifices. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our dealings with those who are opposed to us and our dealings with a, a temporal government. Help us to live trusting you, Lord. Lord, you who did not spare your own son, how will you not also with him give us all things? Lord, we know you have our best in mind. And so help us to, in faith, trust you, to worship you, to be gracious to others and confident in the future. Thank you for your love for us on the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.